This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This summer, we're going to work our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. So uh, we're going to start today. We're going to finish. Uh, honestly, I don't know. It's probably going to take us at least three months to get, to get through this letter that Paul writes. But Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to a church that he had planted. And this morning, we're going to talk about the circumstances in which he planted the church and kind of gain some understanding before we jump into it next week. But he, he writes this letter to a church that he started. Uh, due to the circumstances, he had to leave Thessalonica before he was able to really um, fully disciple the young believers who were there. So he writes this letter back to them to uh, check on how they're doing and also to show them this is what it means to follow Jesus. And throughout his letter, the, the big idea that Paul keeps coming back to again and again and again is that when you follow Christ, You've become part of a new kingdom. You've become part of a new culture. Everything in your life changes. And the church he's writing to, they're living in a place that it's not easy to follow Jesus. And so he's writing to remind them, look, when you follow Jesus, it's going to change how you work. It's going to change how you endure. It's going to change how you treat each other. It's going to change every part of your life, your money, your relationships, your friendships. All of you is different because Jesus has come. And so what, what I'm hoping to do for us over the summers as we work our way through this, we'll see that when Jesus arrives in our life, it's supposed to be disruptive, but that's good. It is a, a holy and needed disruption because the way we go about life and the culture in which we live is broken and we need him to come and intervene. Now, Jesus is disruptive. Right. If you read the Gospels, he's a disruptive person. That's not normally a word that you hear associated with him, but it's it just kind of is what it is. Right. And and we'll get to that idea in just a moment. But I want to start in First Thessalonians chapter one because I think Paul makes an important statement that we need to understand. First Thessalonians one one. Paul says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, Paul begins this letter the same way he begins almost all of his letters in the New Testament. He identifies himself as the author. In this case, he also includes his ministry partners, Silas and Timothy. He identifies the recipients, the church of the Thessalonians. Uh, and, And he normally also includes this line of grace and peace to you. And I think that's important for us to keep in the back of our mind, not just this morning, but as we work through this all summer long, because as Paul presents Jesus as a disruptive king, another king who leads us into a completely new way of life. Sometimes that can feel kind of scary. It can feel kind of off-putting. But what he's reminding us of from the very beginning is, yes, it's going to be disruptive, but in the best way possible, because it's going to be a disruption of grace and a disruption of peace. And it's what we all need to experience, and it's what we all need to share. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to take a, a deep dive into the, the letter of First Thessalonians. But today, I want to go back to Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 9. And in Acts 17, uh, Luke is recording the history of the early church, and he tells us the story of Paul planting the church in Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17, verse 2, you can read along with me. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Paul finds himself in Thessalonica. It is a large, wealthy, influential city. It's a free city, which means they were under the uh, Roman Empire, but they were allowed a certain degree of autonomy. But that, that situation was tenuous, and the reason they respond the way they do to the message of Jesus is the Thessalonians understood that they were only going to be a free city as long as they didn't do anything to disturb the power structures of Rome. And so the, the Jews know this. This is why they present Jesus as a threat to Rome in an effort to drive the Christians out. But this summer, as we work through First Thessalonians, what we'll see is that no matter what obstacles come up, no matter the climate in which believers live, the church thrives even in the harshest environments. But the story of the, the church being planted in Thessalonica that we just read is, is disruptive. Right? It is undoubtedly, it causes an uproar, not just for those who oppose, but also for those who accept. Now, for many of us, disruptive probably isn't the first word that comes to mind when we think of Jesus. Right? There are a lot of other words that would come to mind. Disruptive is what you think of when you think of um, like that kid in school who was always clowning around and messing everything up, or that person in the meeting at work who always has a wisecrack and takes everybody off track. Um, if you're struggling to put a picture with who that person is in your life, that probably means it's you, honestly, um, and you're the one doing that. And, and But anyways, it, it really doesn't matter. Disruption, though, is part of the gospel. Disruption is part of who Jesus is. And in the, the account of the planting of the church in Thessalonica, we see it in, in several ways. First of all, we see it in Paul's life. Paul is the most unlikely church planter in history. Right? If you go back and read in Acts chapter 8, Paul is called Saul, and he's known as the one who is going to destroy the church. He's going around dragging men and women out of their homes, throwing them into prison, breathing out murderous threats against the church and all the followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, we read the story of him on the way to Damascus to arrest more Christians, to persecute the church even further. And he has this uh, disruptive experience with God where Jesus reveals himself to him as the son of God, and he shows him that, that Saul is going to surrender his life to him and begin following him. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, years and years have passed in Paul's life. He's went from becoming being one of the most uh, well-known persecutors of the church to becoming one of his most effective evangelists. He's given himself not only to establishing the, the gospel in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, but all over the world. 
By the time we get to Acts 17, Paul's already completed one missionary journey where he has traveled to new places and planted churches where the gospel had not been. And now this trip to Thessalonica is the beginning of his second missionary journey. Paul's encounter with Jesus was so powerful, it disrupted his life and it disrupted his future. And he gave himself wholly and unreservedly to the cause of Christ. It causes him to begin to travel and share the gospel with everyone, everywhere, anywhere that Paul can gain a hearing by whatever means, whether that's working in the marketplace or preaching in the synagogues, he's going to do it to make much of Jesus. My prayer for us this summer is that as we work our way through 1 Thessalonians, you and I will have a similar response to Jesus. That as we allow him to disrupt our lives, We'll see him for who he really is and what he's really accomplished. And that very much like Paul, we will be willing to say, God, take my life, take my future, take every relationship, every opportunity, and use it for your glory. Give me opportunities to tell others of what you've done for me. Now, now as we start to talk about that idea of us telling others about Jesus, it, for some of us, it, it gets um, pretty tense pretty fast. Because we feel like, well, that's just not my personality, right? I'm not the tell your friends about Jesus guy. That's this person or that person. I'm not outgoing enough. I'm not quick enough on my feet. I just don't, that's not my thing. You know, if, if somebody wants to ask me uh, in private, quietly, when I've had time to prepare and it's on a Sunday right after church and I feel really adequate and maybe they ask three weeks in a row on the third week, I might be ready to talk to them about Jesus, but here's the thing, like, I, I know a lot of you, and the ones that I know, I know you well enough to know you're comfortable talking about the things you care about, right? And even if you don't tell me, like I hear you telling other people, I see you posting pictures or, or statuses, and, and so we're, we're fairly comfortable saying these are things I like, these are things I enjoy. You'll talk about your kids, your grandkids, you'll share the high moments of your life, you'll share your opinion on Bob Stoops' retirement, and if it's a good thing or if it's a bad thing. All those LSU fans are happy because they think they got a chance. You don't. Uh, but, uh, you know, I saw you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll do it, right? We'll share it. You, like, you just ask, uh, you ask on social media, like, tell me your favorite restaurants in Tulsa. You'll get responses. Nobody's shy about it. And nobody ever says, like, the way we talk about Jesus a lot of times is like this. Somebody doesn't know him, and, and we're trying to express our faith. It's like, well, I mean, I don't know if this will work for you or not, but what really worked for me is one time I found Jesus. And But then when it comes to our restaurant, we're like, you should go to this place. It's so awesome. It's amazing. It's life-changing. You never lead with a restaurant of like, I mean, I think it's good, but if you don't, that's okay. We can still be friends, and I hope you don't think I'm weird because I like that. Like, we don't do it, right? And not just that, but you're fine talking about everything. Like, I've seen some of you, you'll tell me about the magic oils I should rub on my feet that are going to cure everything. (laughs) But the thought of talking of Jesus is weird? Come on now, right? (laughs) Diffuse this in your house, and your children will calm down. My kids will calm down with a spanking, thank you very much. So... um, That's not really here, but uh, yeah, so, but, but, but we all get it, right? We can talk about what we care about. And so my hope for us this summer, and, and I'm not saying this just you, I'm saying this for me too. My hope is that as we spend time talking about what it means to follow another king, that we will wholly surrender our lives to Jesus, that we'll allow him to do his work of grace and mercy so deep within us that we can't help but speak with others about it. 
that we can't help but say, hey, let me tell you about what has changed my life. More than anything else, it's this decision, it's this person, it's this king. And as we begin to do that, God opens doors for us to share his message of life with others. This is what happens for Paul. His life is so thoroughly transformed by Jesus, he devotes himself to it. He begins to travel all around the world, and it says that when he arrives in Thessalonica, he does what he always does. He goes to the synagogue, and he begins to engage in discussions. And he reasons with them through the scriptures, proving to them that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had to suffer, he had to die, he had to rise again. And so Paul is, in presenting the gospel, he is speaking the language of his audience. So he's in the synagogue speaking to Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles, people who are familiar with the scriptures, and he's telling them, look, this is what the scriptures say about the Messiah. These are all the things that Jesus did that fulfilled those prophecies, and so our conclusion is Jesus is the Messiah. He has come. Now, you and I hear that, but there is, there's just no way that we can hear it in the same way those first century Jews heard it. For them to hear someone say, the Messiah has come, was an earth-shattering announcement. Right? This, what Paul is saying is the fulfillment of all of our people's hopes and dreams, of all of our longings and yearnings, every way that we long to be reconnected with God and each other have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Like they, their minds would have been blown when they heard that. Now, again, for you and I, it's hard to have that same experience, but we get little glimpses of it because when Jesus is revealed to us, though we may not have a full understanding of what it means for him to be the Messiah, we do understand what it means for him to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. We understand what it is to encounter Jesus and to see him as the one who fully and finally can take care of our sin, the guilt, and the shame from our past. We see him as the one who promises to be with us in the present and to secure our future. We see him as the one who can finally satisfy these needs for fulfillment and meaning and purpose. And much like the people in Thessalonica, when Jesus is presented to us, it brings us to this moment of response. See, every disruption creates an opportunity for response. In Thessalonica, when Jesus arrives and and is presented through the message of Paul, they have the opportunity to respond. And they respond in two ways, and it's the two ways you and I continue to respond today. There are those who embrace the disruption, and there are those who choose to fight to maintain the status quo. Paul tells us, or Luke tells us the story this way. He says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. And this is the whole point of Jesus. When Paul arrives in Thessalonica, he is not going to the synagogue to entertain people or to win arguments. He is going with one purpose and one purpose only. It's to say, Jesus is the Messiah, now you give your lives to him. Jesus is the king, now you surrender to him. Jesus is the savior, now let him save you from your sins. He is clear, he is direct, there's a call to response, and what the the book of Acts tells us is there are people who respond. They choose that day to cast their lot with Jesus, to say, I'm going with Jesus, I'll follow Paul and the apostles and these other believers, and we'll see what he does. Right? It's the same response that God intends for you and I to have today. Not to settle for knowing about Jesus, 
Not to settle just for some kind of disciplined religious life that makes us feel a little better about ourselves. But to let God lead us and guide us into this new life where the grace and the mercy, the peace of Christ rule and reign in every moment. This is how God intends for us to respond. But unfortunately, not all of us do. In verse 5, it says there were other Jews who were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials. Now, what what the, the church being planted in Thessalonica teaches us is something we see played out again and again through the New Testament and really throughout history from that point on. And it's that wherever the gospel is presented, people in positions of power are threatened by it. Right? In Thessalonica, they, the Jews, they don't reject Jesus because they don't understand it. They reject him because they understand exactly who he is and what he's claiming. And if he's the Messiah, it means that they have lost all of their claims to religious power and authority. It means that they've lost their ability to tell other people this is how you should live and this is what you should do. And so their rejection of Jesus is a rejection because they don't want to lose their power. right? And, and they appeal to the leaders of Thessalonica on the same basis, saying, look, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here defying Caesar. They're not defying Caesar. They're not doing anything. Jesus doesn't come to overthrow Rome. Jesus doesn't come to establish a political kingdom. He's not concerned with armies and borders and treaties. Jesus comes to rule and to reign in the hearts of men. To rule and to reign in the hearts of women and teenagers and children. He doesn't come for what's out there. He comes for what's in here. The most unruly land. And that's perhaps where it's most threatening to us. You see, you might be here this morning and feel like, well, that's fine if he threatens people of power. I'm not a person of power. I have no control over anyone or anything. Right? But you do have control over yourself and over your life. And the temptation we face to fight to maintain the status quo when Jesus disrupts our life is because we don't want to give up control. Because he comes as another king and we think, but I like my kingdom. You know, I might not have a control over anything out there, but at least in this space, I can control what I do and how I do it and why I do it. And Jesus comes as the king over every square inch of creation. And he says, all of your heart, all of your life, all of your soul, it's mine. And so often when we reject him, we don't necessarily react like they did in Thessalonica. We're not going to go start a riot. But we, we do something similar. In Thessalonica, they hear the message of Jesus, and the Jews, it says, they go and they round up some bad characters. Basically, they go and start a mob to run the Christians out of town. They don't want to do it themselves, so they incite someone else to do it. We do a similar thing in different ways. When we want to maintain the status quo, we, we hear the claims of Jesus. And there are parts of it that we like, and there are some parts of it that we don't like. And so, but we don't really want to surrender entirely, and we don't want to reject him entirely. So what we start doing is we start looking around, finding someone to validate the way we want to follow Jesus. The scriptures tell us there's two ways, accept him or reject him. And we're always looking for a third way. We're looking for a third way where we can follow him as much as it's convenient for us. We're looking for a way where he can be more of a religious mascot 
and less of an authoritative king. Right? And, and so we'll start to go around, we'll start to talk to other people about whatever that issue is. I mean, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an issue with your finances, maybe it's an issue with your relationships, with uh, your, your, whatever it is. And we start to look for somebody who say, hey, I like Jesus, but he said this thing I don't like, what do I do? And so maybe you come to someone like me and you say, what do I do? And I tell you, well, you go with Jesus. Right, You do what he says, and, and you don't like my answer, so you go to someone else, and, and you say, hey, what should I do? And they tell you the same thing, and so you go to a home group leader or somebody else, and, and we'll search, and we'll search, and we'll search until we'll find someone who will lower the bar enough to say, that's fine. As long as you like Jesus and you're doing your best, it's okay. You can just do that. You can just go that way. And we're constantly looking for this third option. Right? We're fighting to maintain the status quo, but we're not willing to say entirely that we reject Jesus. We just want to settle into this space where we can follow him on our terms. In 1952, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And I know some of you have probably read that book, but he, he has a chapter in there where he talks about who Jesus is. And importantly, he talks about who Jesus said that he was. And Lewis addresses this idea of searching for a third way. Of I, I don't want to accept him as Lord, Savior, and King. I don't want to reject him entirely. I want to ride the fence. I want to be on the middle ground. And he, he wrote this in 1952. Honestly, he could have wrote it this morning. And it would make be just as relevant as it was then. Have you read this with me? He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so we read that. And, and for many of us, especially if you grew up in the church, your response to that is, get him, right? Like, yeah, he said it. And it's like, God, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and C.S. Lewis for us evangelicals. So get him, C.S., Clive, you know, go. Uh, and, and so we, we have that response. But, but here's where I want to push back on me and on you this morning. When Jesus presents himself to us in the Gospels, he is abundantly clear about who he is and why he came. He's the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And he is the one who came to restore our relationship with the Father and our relationship with each other. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who defeats death on our behalf and now shares that eternal life with us. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. He is so clear He is our Savior, but He is also our King. 
He comes not only to save us, but to transfer us into his kingdom. And when we move into his kingdom, it disrupts our life. And so for us this morning, if you can look at your life and say, Jesus, I mean, yeah, I I like him. I, I follow him, but there's no disruption there. Jesus doesn't disrupt my life. My encouragement to you would be to spend some time this week thinking about why that is. Because if you surrender to him, it's going to be disruptive. Right? If you allow yourself to be adopted into his family, it's going to change your identity. It's going to change your priorities. And so if we find ourselves in this position of saying like, well, yeah, but not really. And, and sometimes perhaps this temptation is greatest for those who grow up in the church and from your earliest age you've identified as a Christian. But your life has never actually been disrupted by Jesus. I mean, you can be baptized without being disrupted by Jesus. Every follower of Christ should be able to point to areas of their life and say, this is different. Because I follow him. If you're married, you should love your spouse differently because Jesus has disrupted your life. I should be able to look at your bank account and see that your finances are disrupted because Jesus has changed your life. We should look at how we plan for the future and it shouldn't be like everyone else because Jesus has disrupted our life. The way you use your vacation days should be different than the rest of our culture because Jesus has disrupted your life. And listen, these, these are not legalistic requirements being laid on you. If you walk out thinking, well, fine, I guess I'll waste some vacation this year so you get off my back. You've missed the whole point. Right? The point is, let him disrupt your life and you will follow joyfully and gladly into this new disruptive lifestyle. Amen. He didn't come to beat you over the head and drag you. It's not a kingdom of denim skirts and no makeup. Right? Thank God. I mean, just personally. Thank God. Thank God. It is a life-giving kingdom. It's not a kingdom of, hey, why don't you all gather together once a week and have somebody yell at you about how terrible you are? It's not a kingdom of, hey, welcome in. No one's ever going to like you. You're never going to be good enough. It's a kingdom of grace and peace. It's a kingdom of love and joy. It's a kingdom where he fulfills every longing and every need. For all those in Thessalonica got wrong when they rejected Jesus. They were right about one thing. He was another king. Right? They, they misunderstood the gospel. It was not coming to overthrow Rome. But he was coming as another king. And he was coming to rule and to reign in the hearts of men and women. For you and I this morning, we need another king. It's not threatening to us. Right now, now again, that idea of, of following another king, depending on how you grew up or, or your, your spot in life this morning, it, it can feel like the hammer's about to drop. Like, okay, here it comes. Tell me what a terrible person I am and how I need to come be miserable and follow Jesus the rest of my life. That's not it. Right? The reason you need another king is because your life is broken. Because it's not as it should be. And look around, just look in our, watch the news in Tulsa for one week and tell me we don't need another king. Right? Stories of violence, 
stories of abuse and neglect, stories of people indulging the darkest parts of sin and wreaking havoc on those around them. Look in our homes and our marriages and tell me we don't need another king. Look at your own life this morning and tell me you don't need another king. All our efforts come up short because our power is limited. And it's why Jesus comes to show us another way. And this way is one where we surrender to him and he brings his kingdom and he accomplishes his plan and he fills our hearts with his grace and his mercy. And so when we see him as a disruptive king, our response is, thank God it's about time. I can't do it anymore. Our response is, thank you, Lord. I'm wrecking this on my own. Thank God you're here. I Just take it. Take it all. And so this morning, whatever area of life you need him to disrupt, surrender it to him. If you need him to disrupt your marriage, surrender it to him. You need him to disrupt your sin, your addictions, surrender those to him. You need him to to disrupt the lives of your children, surrender them to him. You need him to disrupt your your finances because greed and debt are killing you, surrender it to him. You need him to, to, to disrupt your desire for power and fame and success because it's never satisfied. Surrender it to him. He came to disrupt our brokenness and to lead us into a path of life. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes with me, I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask you something a little bit differently this morning. If if you're here and you know there, there are parts of your life, relationships, areas of your heart, circumstances outside of your control, and your prayer this week is just, God, I need you to disrupt this. Whatever this is, will you raise your hand where you are so I can pray for you? Thank you. God, you see us. You see those that responded and you see those that didn't. We come to you this morning asking for your holy disruption in our lives. Come as another king to us. Come as the one who leads us into a path of life. Come as the one who brings grace and peace into our disasters. The one who brings hope to our tragedies. Come as the one who shines your light into the darkest corners of our hearts and our minds. Come and bring peace and comfort. Come and disrupt it all for the sake of your glory and the sake of your kingdom. May we be wrecked by your mercy and your grace today. Give us faith to believe that you have provided all that we need and you are making it available to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.